0: hello everyone it's adasha townsend of the feast and fashion podcast i'm a veteran food and beverage journalist who's worked with some of the most notable media outlets in the world feast and fashion is the intersection of food and fashion one beautiful plate or glass at a time with each episode i will introduce you to fascinating fabulous people in the culinary industry. Today, Chef Keith Saracen joins me. He's the founder of The Farmer's Dinner, where he's hosted more than 100 pop-up feasts at farms throughout New England. He has also created a line of farmer-inspired t-shirts that he sells every season. Additionally, Chef Saracen is extremely passionate about Indian fare, and he's been an avid student of the cuisine and culture for more than 10 years. You're certain to get a taste of his knowledge in every meal he whips up. We cannot wait to find out more about him. Welcome to Feast and Fashion, the podcast, Chef Saracen. How's it going, Keith?
1: It's going amazing. How are you doing today?
0: I am fantastic. Thank you for asking. So I am so fascinated by your culinary point of view, and the fact that you host these pop-up dinners at farms across the country. Now, how did this start?
1: Yeah, great question. So, you know, I was uh, I was kind of 14 years old uh, and I was growing up in, in this place uh, in New Hampshire, a uh, really small town. And uh, I always like was kind of thrust into the kitchen because I wanted a mountain bike when I was really young. And my mom's like, you got to work for it. And so the kitchen life kind of gave me a family. And so as I worked my way up through the years, one of the things that I noticed is we were sourcing products like apples from 1300, 1500 plus miles away. When I live in New Hampshire and there's a million apple orchards right down the road that are gorgeous. And so when I approached the owners about it, I'd be like, hey, like, why aren't we, you know, why aren't we working more with with farms? They were like, well, farms are, you know, they're expensive and they don't deliver but i thought it was just a bull excuse you know i wanted to i wanted to get in there and really do something amazing so i (laughs) in my youth i was a little bit more reckless so i I kind of up and quit and i was like hey um you know what here's my two weeks i'm gonna go hang out with some farmers and uh that's actually how it started i ended up going to volunteer on some local farms in the southern new hampshire area and at the end of the day, I would hear these incredible stories uh, from people like Carl Hills from Kimball Fruit Farm in Pepper, Massachusetts. And he would tell us, you know, would tell me kind of like, hey, here's what it's like to farm nowadays. He would say, you see that big pine tree up there? And I'd be like, yep. He'd be like, when I was eight years old, I climbed that pine tree and I overlooked this entire area and I knew I wanted to be a farmer. And I was like, at eight? Like, I think I wanted to be a transformer at that point. Like, <laughs> I had no idea. And so the stories just kept unraveling and so my love for farms and uh and farm product started growing and so i at the end of my time you know with carl and some other farms out there i looked at him and i was like you know what we should host a dinner just you know sourcing local food and um in between courses i'd love if you got up and told a couple of stories like you told me and he's like ah no one wants to listen to us we're old farmers I said, challenge accepted. And uh, the first farmer's dinner was exactly that. It was in 2012. I hosted a dinner for about 50 people in, a, okay. in this restaurant. And uh, in between courses, we had some of the farmers that I got to know uh, get up, talk a little bit about what they do. And at the end of the event, I was blown away because people were like, this is a great event. And I kept thinking of it like this is this is just dinner, right? Right. Um, but they were like, please do another event. And the word event like didn't trigger for me. And so mm. the chef of, of the restaurant at the time, because I wasn't cooking it, he um, he said, hey, this was amazing. He's like, why don't we do another in a couple of months? So I threw the other one on sale and it sold out in 24 hours and we had 110 person waiting list and it was crazy.
0: Wow. 110 person wait list.
1: Yeah. It sold out nice. within twenty hours, 24 hours and ever since then, it, it was kind of a constant evolution of Figuring out how to put a business model to all this stuff. We uh, we said we wanted it to be a win for the farmers. In the beginning, farmers were like, let's donate some stuff. And we were like, no, we can't do that. We have to pay you. Thus, the premise of the farmer's dinner. And so uh, we really wanted to kind of explore that side of it. And since then, we're, uh, we're nine years old. I call them seasons as a company. So this is season nine for us. And uh, we are completely sold out for the entire year. Uh, Since then, we've hosted just under 100 dinners on local farms across New England. We've given back $160,000 to local farms and fed over 17,000 people.
0: I love this. What an amazing story and amazing idea. And I have to ask, you know, in all these farmers, have you ever gotten in there
1: and worked on some farms yourself? Absolutely. So it it all started because of that. Right. I wanted, you know, like to be very candid, um, the disconnect between farmer and chef is very, very wide.
0: Right. Mm.
1: You know, we as chefs, we have this global supermarket at our fingertips. We pull Mm -hmm. out our phone, we make a call and all of a sudden it's there the next day. Farms don't operate that way. Mm -hmm. A hailstorm can wipe out an entire season of growth for them. Um, a bad, you know, a bad storm changes the landscape of farms, so that things can't grow. So I needed to really understand what it was like to, you know, to, to operate seasonally. And so I didn't know when strawberries grew in New Hampshire, I knew that they magically appeared, and then they magically disappeared, right. Mm-hmm. And so I knew the only way I was going to learn that is by getting my hands in the soil. And so thankfully, people like Carl Hills, was like, yeah, come on down. And so I started learning about The first flush of strawberries uh, in a season is right at Father's Day. And now every Father's Day leading up to it, I get so excited for that moment (laughs) because I don't eat strawberries until that happens. And then it's just like, boom, it's an explosion.
0: What do those strawberries taste like around Father's Day when they're brand new like that during the beginning of the season?
1: So it's, uh, it's a wonderful feeling. So strawberry fields, unless you've seen them before, they're covered in hay, right? Cause the hay kind of just really helps insulate the berries quite a bit and insulates the plant. And mm-hmm. so what you do is when you walk on them, there's like this, this, you walk in between these little hay fields and that first bite of a strawberry, I always time it where I make sure it's like a hot day. You, know, you want to go out and you feel the sun beating on you. And that first bite is like, you know, I think, the best way to describe it is what strawberry isn't. And a lot of people are used to the strawberries in the supermarket, those big fat things that are juicy and all that. An actual strawberry is a lot smaller than some of these bigger ones that you get from bigger manufacturers. The reason is the water content, the more water you're feeding that strawberry, the more it's going to plump it. And a lot of Western consumers want that bigger strawberry. Mm -hmm. But the more you condense the sugars, the more you let that ripen on the vine, the more berry flavor you get. So it's this pop of acidity, sourness, and sweetness that balances beautifully in one split second.
0: Wow. I I did not know that. Okay. Because I always love the plump strawberries. But now when I go to my farmer's market, I am definitely going to look for the smallest strawberries (laughs) based on what you said. And what do you usually do with those strawberries?
1: So I always say when we get a product that, that is that good, our job is to not mess it up. Like it's uh-huh. really it, you know? So it's, you know, I don't want to get too chefy with things a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Um, Kimball Fruit Farm also grows 61 varieties of heirloom tomatoes. When you oh. have a tomato that's that good, picked from a vine in the peak season, I don't start thinking, hey, you know what? Let's break this down and like, you know, do all this, add all this stuff to it. I'm like, man. This is perfect in its in its natural form. So with the strawberries, I like to um, what I'll do is I'll make jams and I'll preserve them. Since I live in New England, it's a tundra for six months out of the year, and uh, you know everyone knows what it's like to be real cold. So what I want to do is I want to extend the season by preserving it. So fermentation, canning, uh, pickling, jams, things of that nature, I like to help extend the season. So as it's later on and I don't have those berries anymore, I can crack a jar. Take a a, close my eyes and smell that. And it brings me back to that moment in the season.
0: Talk about how you became so passionate about Indian cuisine.
1: So a very long story short, I grew up uh, a very picky eater, right? I, you know, I eat mac and cheese and chicken nuggets and a friend of mine, his family owned an Indian restaurant. They were Indian and they would always try to get me to try food. And I was like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Um, the preconceived notion was it all looked the same. It wasn't appealing. It wasn't appetizing. Um, the scents were not scents I could recognize. And so our innate nature is when we don't know something is familiar, we fear it. And mm-hmm. so I was always afraid of it. So one day we when we were younger, he's like, hey, if I beat you in this video game, you got to try Indian food. <laughs> I'm like, deal. And uh, boy, am I glad I lost that. <laughs> so Uh, The first bite of Indian food I had was uh, this dish from a state called Goa, and it was called chicken vindaloo. I remember the first time I ripped a piece of garlic naan and dipped it into that sauce, and I closed my eyes and took a bite. And it was like Neo seeing the matrix. All of a sudden, (laughs) a whole world opened up to me. I didn't understand that food could be that that flavorful. I didn't understand. I was like, how is this happening? And I knew a good amount about cuisine. Mm -hmm. Um, The next day, his family needed some spices, and we went to the local spice shop, and there was this beautiful (laughs) older lady at the end of the store um, who was kind of short, and I was just looking around like a deer in the headlights, and -hmm. she came up to me, and she's like, you want to try something? And I was like, sure. She had a little tiny restaurant that she would just serve lunch every day, and it was this vegetable, and it looked like grain to me. Uh, it's, It's called suji sabji. Um, which is kind of what it's called now that I know it. And so I took the first bite and it was the same sort of feeling. I was like, I never would have eaten this because it's just pure vegetables. You know, like who wants to eat all that? Is what I was thinking at the time. And uh, she smiled and she said, hi, my name is Indira. Um, Indira. And I, that began a life altering um, course for me. I ended up showing up there all the time. Uh, we became <laughs> really good friends over years. I asked her and begged her to teach me to cook, and she's like, "You don't know how to cook," and I was like, "No, I like I really do know. Like I'm a I'm a chef," and she's like, "Ah, uh, you know Western cooking," and so one day she uh she needed some help on a website for hers, and I knew how to fix it, and so I was like, "If I do this, you got to teach me one thing," and so we made that deal, fix the website, and the next thing I know is I was uh, washing rice in the kitchen. And it began about a six-year journey into so many different things. We would do catering orders together. I started learning Hindi um, and learning spices, you know, cumin, being jira, and things like that because I wanted to show her that this wasn't something that I wanted to appropriate. It was something that I wanted to appreciate. And in the last 10 years of my life, I have slowly weaned more and more to devoting my life to it. And uh, in 2000, I sold my restaurants. And now I <laughs> literally run the farmer's dinner and I full time just work at learning um, so much about Indian cuisine history. I study with uh, my guru Kurastalal out of um, Mumbai um, and Ragini. I have a podcast called More Than Masala, where we tackle one spice every month. Um, and yeah, and now I run these really high pop ups that take authentic flavors from the subcontinent and bring in modern plating styles. And so it's it's been an incredible journey that I it is part of my soul. It's just brings me so much love.
0: I love it. I love it. Now, what are some of the misconceptions about Indian cuisine that you found out during your journey?
1: Oh, I love that question. So first and foremost, not all of it is spicy. And I know that, that you know, everyone thinks, oh, Indian food's spicy. Um, no, it means spice as in flavor, not as in heat. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. word called masaladar. In, in hindi that means spicy and not all dishes have that uh, the other mi- misconception is everything is is curry right the word mm-hmm. curry isn't really doesn't really translate very much there's a thing called panndi um which is kind of a gravy based thing but a curry is something the british kind of invented the curry powder they wanted to take that spice that that blend of spices back to the uk or england at the time and they wanted to be able to bring that flavor back so they created curry powder and so all there's, there's so many dishes that have nothing to do with a rich gravy like that. And I'd say the third thing is food changes dramatically every single, like 30 kilometers. Every wow. single state has a vastly different food. So to call something Indian food, I honestly don't even know what Indian food is. I think at this point, it depends what state you're in.
0: Do you remember how many different types of Indian cuisine you've had
1: thus far? So I've cooked, I would say, probably about one dish from every state at this point. That's Um, incredible. I'm I'm still working on it. And there's so many variations. Um, You know, if if you did something like chaat. So chaat means the best translation we would have is it's a snack, but it means to lick, like to to lick your fingers. Um, And because it's like chaats are these wonderful snacks that you get in street food. And so there's so many varieties of chaat. You know, you you could get a vada chaat. You could get you know a different chaat if you're in Gujarat. So it, it's so hard to quantify that. Um, I think what I, what I try to do now, that I think is the most important, is whenever I create a dish, I start by understanding the region that it's from. Number one, like where is it? Where is its origin? And number two, what's the history behind the origin of this dish? Because if I'm gonna replicate something that's so complex. And I've cooked insane food all over the West and wonderful fine dining kitchens and nothing. And I mean, nothing has been as challenging as Indian food. It is so much harder than anything I've ever done. And so I look at the historical aspects of that. That helps me influence the cuisine.
0: And how much does this type of cuisine play into your farmer's
1: dinners? So now every single solitary time I put out a dish, there's some sort of nod to it, whether that's a spice blend or whether that's a chutney, or whether that's a technique, there's techniques called like Tadka, which is basically kind of a tempering, um, like a ghee and, and flavored oil tempering technique. So I add techniques to help showcase these different things. Mm-hmm. And that brings people into, oh, Indian food is so much more. And that's the goal.
0: So talk about some of your favorite events. Uh, you've thrown almost a hundred. You know, congratulations.
1: You know, it's funny. Every event is very unique and very, um, very exciting. You know, it's like you always get those butterflies. Um, some of the ones that stand out for me is uh, there's a town in a city in in uh, New Hampshire called Nashua, and it's a fairly large t- uh, city. It's got about ninety thousand people, and uh, one of the organizations approached me and they were like, we'd like to do a really large dinner shutting down Main Street and working with a lot of the the restaurants that were there okay. so um, that just over like wrapping my head around what that was going to be like was exceptional. It took seven months of planning, you know, board meetings and all of these things. And a lot of people who were way smarter than me, mind you. So I want to give credit to them to help pull this off. But in the end of it, we, uh, we hosted 325 people in the middle of Main Street, shut it down and rerouted traffic and did a six course meal that was really celebrating the farmers, but also the wonderful restaurants right on that street. So that one was big. That was a real pivotal moment in my career. One of the things that made me love that wasn't just the size of the event, it was the people involved. Uh, there's a local chef who does very well, his food is exceptional, named Michael Buckley. Mike is, is done really well. He doesn't need to be doing an event like this. You know, he's very successful, but he slept in his truck to do pigs on a rotisserie. And at the end of it, after everything was cleared, I walked up and down that street so many times everyone went to a local restaurant to celebrate and have a drink. And I was like, I'll be right there. So I was making sure the street was good, cleared up. Finally, I was uh, I thought I was the last person in that hoard a glass of scotch. And I went and I just wanted like a lot of times I just kind of want to be alone to let that that energy kind of settle for a minute. Uh-huh. And I look out the window onto Main Street and there's Mike Buckley on his hands and knees scrubbing pig grease off the sidewalk. I like stopped and I like put down my drink and I ran toward him like, chef, chef, let me help, let me help. And he looked up at me. He's like, this is your moment. He's like, go drink. And I remember that. And I'll never forget that because it helped me understand that nobody is ever above any work. You know, he didn't need to do that. He could have had a hundred people in his organization do that. He's very successful with a lot of restaurants, but that's the dedication it takes. And so that was a lesson that I'm eternally grateful for.
0: That is fantastic. I love hearing stories about big chefs who are really down to earth. I mean, don't you? I mean, you've got to love those kind of stories.
1: Absolutely, because it helps us relate with them. At the end of the day, (laughs) we're the dishwasher, we're the cook, we're the prep cook, we're the chef, we're the everything, and that's okay. You
0: said New Hampshire and you said New England. So uh, where are some of the other where you have
1: collaborated with? It's a lot in Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts has been kind of a big home for us. Uh, We source things out of some different farms in Maine and Vermont. Uh, in Rhode Island. Um, But mass, since we're on the border of it, we try to stay kind of regional in what we're doing. Um, The more that you travel, the harder these events can be at times. And so uh, we work with a lot of of Massachusetts organizations. We did uh, this this dinner four or five years ago um, at a small farm in Harvard, Massachusetts. And it was this beautiful little farm that did a lot of different fruits. And they had this gorgeous wraparound porch and I remember originally we were going to do the farm in the blueberry patch because it was July. Oh. But the sun was beating down and it was brutally hot. And <laughs> a lot of what we do in our organization is pivot very quickly, right? We have to understand mm-hmm. that weather comes in, things happen. Mm-hmm. And there was a good chance of rain. And so instead of tenting it, we we're like, hey, there's a really great opportunity to do this on the wraparound porch because it's just stunning. And I remember we did it there and uh, we worked with a a farm called Lilac Hedge Farm that produced the meat for us that night that was right down the road. All of the produce was from that farm um, that we hosted that. And it was just, we got this shot, I think it's on my website, this beautiful picture of like the night and the lights and all the porch. And it just had this gorgeous wraparound effect. And you saw the smiles on everyone's faces. And it's really amazing to say like, we and it's not me. Understand it's like we created this moment, like the farmer, the crew, everyone created that moment.
0: I've never actually done a farm to table event at a farm. I've been to a lot of a lot of them at restaurants, but I get invited to them, and I have not made the plunge yet. Convince me to go to one of these events.
1: Oh, this this is easy. Uh, everyone loves the picture, right? So that's, yeah. they, they romanticize the picture yes. of the, the long table in the field. The thing that I think is so unique about this is dining is very much an experiential thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where we want to go and we want to meet the chef and we want to shake hands with the team and we want to like have that chef's table experience. Mm-hmm. Well, imagine coming to a dinner where there's no running water, there's no electricity, and all of a sudden this team is putting together this elaborate six course meal that you would get at any fine dining restaurant out of food that's literally grown within reach of where you are. Stump We time every dinner for su- every dessert for sunset. So there's a lot of reverse engineering that goes through the process, why we fire things when we do our staging for it. Every dessert happens at sunset. It's gorgeous
0: wow i mean that's pretty convincing that's pretty i love an experience i love a dinner that um i can talk about for years and imagine that wrap around experience a patio that's definitely something i would want to do here's the reason why i haven't done one yet i'll just be honest is because i just imagined i don't know flies or some kind of <laughs> strange bugs coming out of anywhere and I'm just a little reluctant because of that. But I love the idea of getting the food fresh from the farm
1: right there. Yeah, we've had horror stories, right? Where like, <laughs> we'll be working with something and you'll just see a swath of bugs start to, and like, <laughs> the way that you handle a lot of this is is really great sanitation, really <laughs> great packing of materials, uh, citronella <laughs> candles, things like that, because oh. we've really learned we continue to learn, mind you, because again, every dinner is a whole other set of obstacles that you never see coming. What's your website, Keith? Uh, it's www.thefarmersdinner.com.
0: And what will people find on the website?
1: Sure. So, first thing you're going to see is a lot of wonderful pictures. You <laughs> to scroll. You know, Entice we them. think what we yeah, we well, what we like to do is we like to think of what we do as an experiential thing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people love farm to tables, but we're bringing tables to farms. You know, so it's like this whole other kind of of, of thing. Um, you're going to find a list of events. Um, all of, all of our dinners on farms are currently sold out. We typically sell out very quickly. We put them on sale at the end of the year for the next calendar year. That's outstanding. Uh, it's crazy. Um, we're very fortunate and. What we do is different because everything's plated. There's other companies that do an incredible job too, mind you. But what we do is we really want to bring it from the artistic standpoint. So we love to do plated courses. It's not not kind of buffet style. It's not family style. It's all plated food, which is crazy to do. (laughs)
0: I can only imagine. So where are the guests coming from? Are they local or are they throughout the region? Where Where are these people coming from?
1: So we have about a 50% new clientele at every dinner. Um, we have the hardcore uh, Farmer's Dinner foodie fans uh, who have come to literally years and years worth of dinners. Um, it's incredible if they didn't believe in me, we wouldn't be a company, you know? So you, it's always important to give them their honor and thank them. Um, But we also get that new clientele where people are like, I heard of this. Like I've heard you guys have been around for a while. Like I finally got tickets. Uh, We have a lot of scalpers at this point who are like, you know, we post. Oh, you're hot when
0: you have scalpers.
1: (laughs) Apparently, you know, there's a lot of bartering and trading going on for the events that we're doing now, which is crazy. And it's just been, Honestly, it's amazing, but I think the best thing that we do, I can't say this enough, the best thing that we do is support these incredible farms that we work with.
0: Absolutely. And I just have a feeling, I already kind of know what your answer is going to be to this this next question. You're pairing with beverages, of course. Uh, What are you doing there as far as the beverages, whether they're spirits or beer or wine? Are you doing local as well?
1: Yeah. So... (laughs) This this is not going to be the answer you think. Um, so we what we like to do is is we'll get some some inquiries about hey what should I pair with this? We don't want to handle the liquor liability of this, so we it's actually BYOB, um, and it actually oh. works out really really well. And so we'll have a lot of people say hey what's the menu? What would you recommend? And we love to do that. Okay. Um, we, we've been able to do some really great wine dinners in places before that aren't on farms. Like there's a wonderful winery down the road from us called Belle Winery. And we've hosted several dinners there. Um, New England Mm. wine is very Mm. diverse Um, it's not Napa (laughs) it's at all so I think the first is kind of getting rid of that preconceived notion but there's some incredible New Hampshire things happening from wines to spirits to beers some of the best beer I've ever had is being brewed right here at like 603 brewery Um, it's just it's incredible
0: tell me about the wineries though you you said it's not like Napa so Tell me about the wineries and some of your favorite ones.
1: Sure. So um, I'll start with some of the the wineries that we've worked with. Uh, There's a a winery in Meredith, New Hampshire, which is right on the lakes uh, in New Hampshire. Gorgeous, gorgeous town. Uh, We shut down Main Street there and we worked with a winery called Hermit Woods Winery. And Hermit Woods Winery is making wine from fruit. Um, Not just grapes, because again, the the soil structure and the climate is completely, completely different, but they're Mm -hmm. taking fruits like quince and berries and they're taking it and really putting some fruit forward wines. Now some of it you get is really, really sweet on that Mm -hmm. side, make wonderful dessert wines, but they're actually working a lot on the chemistry of it to, to kind of make some drier and bolder wines that are very, very different. When we think wine, we think Napa, right? We think, you know, France. We think like th- those kind of big bold flavors. Mm-hmm. Um, with New Hampshire wines, I'm, th- I'm so thankful that a lot of the wineries are thinking, hey, our job isn't to be that. Our job is to be New Hampshire. Mm. And that's really inspiring. Does that carry
0: on to the craft beers
1: and spirits as well? So a lot of the, the New Hampshire brewers out here are just doing some incredible things. Uh, from working with uh, wild forged ingredients in some of their brews to just standing up and saying, hey, we're proudly New Hampshire. We're going to do this really bold beer. Um, the uh, Kelson Brewing uh, does this Paradigm Brown Ale that I'm just obsessed with. And Kelson's really cool because they've won so many awards for that beer across the entire globe so like kelson's incredible 603 brewery there's what they're doing is it's a bunch of people who are just i think at our hearts we're just nerds right where we want to understand like the alchemy of it we want to break it down and they're saying hey we're gonna when we can work with great farms uh the cider game out here is really good we're known for apples there's a lot of Uh apples out here um so we're getting all this diversity that happens that's that's really what it's about
0: I love the fact that you're teaming up with all, all of these different players in the beverage and spirits industries locally, of course. And I, I just want to know how in the nine years that you've been doing this, you're in season nine, correct? You're about to, you're embarking upon season nine. How much you think that the farm to table scene and the whole, the whole local scene, how have you seen that evolve over the years?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, when I started this, uh, a lot of, like, the first interviews that I had with local, local papers when they found I was doing this, they were like, so you're building a business on a fad. And I was like, yeah, but, like, I don't think it's a fad. Like, I don't think wanting to know where your food comes from is a fad. I don't oh. think that wanting to support the people who have been in your community for generations is a fad. And if that's a fad, I feel really bad feel really, really bad. Um, so I I saw this wave coming because it was me at the end of the day. This whole business sprang up because I just wanted some local options and I didn't know how mm-hmm. or where. And it turns out there were some people doing some really great things, wonderful restaurants on the in the seacoast of New Hampshire. But what I think really evolved and changed over the course of the nine years is the mainstream nature of this. I've seen so many smaller farms be able to find sustainability, thanks to great organizations, thanks to restaurants finding the ability to source. Uh, there's a, an app for New Hampshire called the Three Rivers Farmers Alliance, which allows a chef or a person to, to go on and say, you want cabbage. You can go boom, cabbage because it's in season at the time. We'll mm-hmm. say, and uh, you can have pickup spots at various farmers markets. Cool. So it helps you really make life a lot easier, you know. And mm-hmm. restaurants use this as well. So it that stuff to me makes all the difference. And I, I think the sky's the limit for where the uh, the farm to table movement is going.
0: That's that is really good to hear. I'm in Chicago, and I'm not sure if there. I know people were talking about building apps like that. So I'm going to look into it and see if that exists, but that is yeah. so cool that they're making it easy. So there's no excuses now about yep. how hard it is to get right
1: right out there. And and that's fine. Like some things can be more expensive when it comes to meat and pro, and, and stuff. But when you're buying produce in season, when, mm-hmm. when there's a word for it called bumper crops, like if there's a lot of something it's like a bumper crop, if you're buying oh. that you're getting great prices and great oh. product. And your money's going right back into the community that's supporting you. That's how a business should be built.
0: Very important. Community, building community. Awesome. Let's talk about your personal style a little bit and how that plays into the whole scheme of your platform and concept.
1: All right, shoot. I'm ready for this. This this is the tough (laughs) questions, right? Uh, Just coming from the guy with the backwards hat on right now.
0: So I'm just trying to get an idea of, you know, day to day, you know, what your fashion choices are, you know, what you're dressing like when you're doing these events. You're probably in a chef's coat, but day to day, you know, yeah. T- talk about that.
1: So uh, let's talk events first and then we'll go into day to day. So with okay. events, um, one of the things I wanted to do is say screw chef coats. Um <laughs> really because we we found them to be like super pretentious at times and don't get me wrong there's a time and a place i have an event coming up next weekend that i'm going to be wearing a chef coat for <laughs> but uh, a lot of us really want to be relaxed so we'll wear kind of t-shirts and beautiful aprons over it um you know mm-hmm. for us there's some apron companies that we love uh hedley and bennett is obviously one that we've we've always been really big fans of um and then there's some smaller local companies that i've been learning about little by little as well so aprons to chefs have been really important. Um, for me in my day to day, if it's just day to day, I <laughs> I'm a nerd out here. But I designed series of farmer's dinner t shirts. And I love like super soft cottony t shirts. Um, I just love the breathability of them. So we I, I wear a lot of those shirts. But the best part for me is when I get to go out. Which isn't as much as I'd like to anymore. Things a lot COVID, and I'm sure we all feel like that. But my style is pretty straightforward. I love like button down shirts, nice pair of shoes. I'm just such a, a classic like base person. There, good fitting jeans. A lot of guys just don't understand fit. Isn't that true? Oh, no, they don't. They don't understand yeah. the fit of the jeans. And like, I'm a chef, so clearly I'm not. I'm not a size one here. You know, like I get that, but like it's a bigger guys can dress good too, you know, nice button downs with vertical stripes. Um, I like all clean button downs with no patterns. I wear a lot of pastel colors. Um, I think that looks good for, for me. And like, I like that style of it. Like it's always been something that I feel comfortable in. Cause if you feel comfortable in it, you're going to present yourself different, right? Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. You, I I didn't know how you were going to take these questions about fashion, but you know, I love your answers. You're getting into it, Keith. I love it. So I want you to go quickly back to the t-shirts, the farmer's t-shirts, because that's that's pretty important. So go into detail about how you came up with this concept for the farmer's t-shirts.
1: Yeah. So every year, like I said, we, we call them seasons, right? So, you know, we're on season nine and I try to design a t-shirt that's specific for that season. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone is completely different. We work with uh, a very small company, Printing Press, out of Nashville, New Hampshire, uh, called Mint and Mint, uh, Mint print works they do so much, like, just wonderful, cottony, like, super soft T-shirts for oh. us. Um, this year, I, <laughs> I decided to throw out all the rules, and I wanted to do something fun. So I designed this T-shirt with kind of a karate man kicking the back of a donkey because it's farmer's <laughs> kick. <laughs> um, so we... It was real simple and straightforward. And I wanted to be dorky because to be honest, like my, my personality is pretty playful. And is that t-shirt going to win awards? No, but it actually says never something know. a lot about what I feel. <laughs> like farmers really kick butt. Like they're awesome people. And so I give them to all of our staff. We wear them. Uh, we have fun with them. And we've gotten a great reception for season nine shirts. Can you get these t-shirts on your website? Yeah, far- thefarmersdinner.com. You can order them. We ship them nationwide.
0: That's awesome. And what about those aprons? You just said that you guys wear the aprons, but what do they look like? What are they designed?
1: Are they what kind of colors are they? Yeah. So Headley and Bennett is an incredible apron company um out of California. And I so they're all made in the USA. Um the the products are just super durable and heavy duty um they have a ton of different color options i and i mean just all over the spectrum so you can get like pinks you can get there's limited edition aprons that they do um i have like a standard kind of heavy duty darker color apron because clearly i think that works for me um and uh and it has some nice white accents uh for the loops um the thing that i love so much about them is they really take a beating and they come mm-hmm. back and they're just i've never had one rip or tear or or fade over time they're just really well built and supporting a great company uh ellen bennett is her name by the way um, who owns that? ellen does an incredible job so if you ever see this ellen huge fan
0: okay <laughs> and you said that um that that's based in new hampshire it's a small company
1: So they're based out actually out of California. Some of the the other companies that we're looking into are kind of like more New England based. And I'm still researching a bunch of them. But a bunch of my friends are like, there's there's a great market for chefs, by the way. There's a great market for chef apparel. And it just hasn't hit yet. Like somebody coming in to do really like beautiful embroidered aprons that Mm -hmm. have like some chef centric things to them. There's a market for all of this stuff. There's a market for chef shirts. You know i you see true cooks um do that on their website there's the hat i'm wearing is literally called it's just heard which That's is something cool. that you say in the kitchen lot you know so it's like from a company called beyond the plate so there's a real market from a fashion that hasn't been tapped yet in the chef community oh.
0: what about shoes because i know that i've talked to several chefs and they've talked about you know standing up all day you know the wear is where a lot of wear and tear on your body so you've got to have the right shoes um, what type of shoes do you usually wear when you're when you're working?
1: So I have about five pairs of non-slip shoes um, that I've went through at different periods of my time. Um, first, you go through the I want to look fashionable shoes um, <laughs> that that don't work as well. Uh, honestly, end of the day, give me my Crocs. Um, I have these non-slip Crocs, and are they fashionable? No, I promise they're not. Um, but I got to admit, I can stand in those for long periods of time. And you just it's just like a little baby angels hugging your foot. You know, <laughs> it, uh, they They're built really tough. They're just great when it comes to being in the kitchen all the time.
0: Okay, well, Keith, it has been so great chatting with you today. Um, One more time, what is that website? Because people are definitely going to want to know more about your events, even though they're sold out this year. Hopefully, people can get in on a 2022 season and get one of those t-shirts. So just the website, please.
1: Sure thing. It's www.thefarmersdinner.com.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much for coming on the Feast and Fashion podcast, Keith. It has been a pleasure.
1: You're wonderful. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, that does it for this episode. I want to thank my guest, Chef Keith Saracen, again for joining me. We're back next Friday with another outstanding, talented, and of course, stylist culinary personality you don't want to miss. Thank you so much for listening to Feast and Fashion on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. I'm your host, Adasha Townsend. Meet me back here next Friday.